0: Good morning morning. and a very uh, warm welcome to you Uh, and thank you for coming on a a Saturday to spend time with uh, somebody who, as I was saying to Elizabeth early this morning, is somebody very much in my blood I think. So um, I've got a feeling I might go off script quite a lot today. Uh, I don't know whether to feel sorry for you or pleased for you about that but uh, I do feel George Herbert's a very important part of my own faith and, uh, and past and hopefully future. So um, we'll see where that goes. But I'm I'm very excited about being here. Can I just ask um, a couple of people, anybody, why you're here today? What what is it that's brought you on a Saturday? spend the whole day here with George yeah. Herbert? Yeah. Me? Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I blush with... Uh, <laughs> I paid him £10 for that. <laughs> John Drury's wonderful book. John Drury's wonderful book, yes. Music at Midnight, and it really is. Yeah. bought this book in I never heard yeah. of so, George Herbert. So you, you so bought the book you know, of George you know, you Herbert, bought. but hadn't didn't know much about no, it? No, I
1: thought they were all marvellous.
0: Yeah. Okay. Marvellous poems, but don't know much about him. One more. Yes.
1: I've never really been into poetry, but I read your book a special words and I want to learn
0: more. Okay, we want to learn more. Great. Okay, well, let me start by a <clears throat> very basic statement. Um, Evelyn Underhill said this, The only interesting thing about religion, at the end of the day, is God. Uh, I really believe that. I think all the other things about religion are sort of interesting, but you know, lots of other institutions have those political problems and institutional uh, secondaries. The only interesting thing about religion is God. Obviously, however, the way God is spoken about and the way God is written about varies enormously. And you can have very vindictive and uh, headmasterly, and angry gods. Quite often when I hear people talk about God, it's almost as if they're talking about a sort of traffic warden with a headache. Somebody, somebody who's sort of out to get you, uh, secretly, um, and slap some sort of ticket of sin on you. So you get those sort of gods around in the air, or you can get very rational, abstract, Oxbridge common room gods, uh, who's sort of, sort of God smoking a pipe and looking sort of carefully down on, on creation. God can be spoken about by fundamentalists with very loud voices, um, you know, argument, weak, shout. Uh, so very loud and in-your-face gods, or you can uh, have a conversation about God that has a sort of vague blush to it by Westerners who think God makes more sense culturally or sociologically. Uh, and many of us get frustrated with this scenario because it's a very unattractive choice at the end of the day uh, between what somebody has called ignorance on fire or intelligence on ice. <laughs> Interesting thing Ignorance on fire or intelligence on ice. <coughs> And uh, you only need to feel that frustration uh, for many of us when you hear somebody like Richard Dawkins condemning God, and yet it's not a God you believe in. Mm. So I'm an atheist too, if it comes to that, with his definition of God. It's not not the God I recognise at all. So you get caught up in this um, funny place sometimes. If you're trying to continue to think rationally and creatively, but also live faithfully. Trying to hold that, unafraid to reason, unashamed to adore. If you're trying to keep those two things together, uh, you can be very frustrated at the moment of the way God is talked about. Uh, obviously, when it comes to talking about God, not everybody acknowledges this fact, but I think it, it is obviously true. When it comes to talking about God, we have no choice except to use metaphors and images. And some of those can be really very damaging. Uh, Some can be very surprising. Some can be puzzling. Some can be magnetic. But they are images and metaphors and similes. And uh, it's very interesting uh, if you wanted to play a word game. You know that associated word game? I say a word and you instantly say what comes into your mind? Yeah. If I did that game with you and said, God, what would, what would instantly your response be? Um, it might be something And Edwin Muir, the great Orkney poet, said for him, God is simply three angry letters in a little black book. Wow and I think for many people that is the response or it might be the abusive father image or it may be love, it may be grace, it may be peace, whatever but what I'm trying to get at is an enormous collage, if I can use that word of images around when we start using the word God George Herbert, of course, I think is one of the par excellence provokers of images and metaphors. I think he thought in metaphors, as the metaphysic poets did. Uh, and so we're going to be immersed today in lots of different images of God. And I hope they will surprise you, they may perplex you, um, they may move you into different places. And while all that's going on, it would be great in the back of your mind if you could be saying, how does this conflict with some of the images of God actually that are still nestling in my past? What's coming up into my mind as I'm encountering these new, fresh (coughs) metaphors? I have a guess that if George Herbert was playing my associated word game and I said, God, I think I know what he would instantly reply. Love. Mm. And uh, as we'll hear in a second, when he wrote that very (coughs) famous poem, Love 3, he even writes that whole poem about God without mentioning the word God, but simply calling God love. But through the day, keep asking yourself, what's my real image of God? And what's that doing to my relationship with God? So because of all this, uh, as we search through some of Herbert's poems, as I say, I want you to think about the image of God that he's creating and that he's presenting to you, whether this does collide uh, or challenge images that are probably very dear to you about God, or actually uh, maybe you've got some images of God you want to shake off because you know they're destructive. Um, They've been so implanted, though, in you at some time or other. In the second session this morning, I'll be exploring an image of God that I think is very evident in Herbert's poems and which I believe we would all benefit from deeply if we could only take it on into our own lives, and that's God as friend. And I think you get a very strong sense as you read his poems that God is... Friend, And I just want to explore in the second uh, session what that might mean. We're going to look at a few poems today. If our timing goes well, we could get up to looking in moderate depth at 12 of his poems. I've given you 25 to take away with you at the end of the day. Um, He wrote about 160, just over 160 poems... And you find those poems in his great collection called The Temple. And I have to say, the subject of every one of those 160-plus poems, in one way or another, is God. Uh, The Temple was published after his death in 1633. And as soon as um, it was published immediately after his death it was enormously popular Um, between his death 1633 and 1709 for instance it it went through 13 editions it was uh, extremely popular he fell out of popularity not long afterwards and then came back again in the 20th century a bit more and and with some fans en route but uh, generally he was very popular after his death fell out of popularity and is now back in a claim. What's striking is the very wide appeal that George Herbert has. Uh, And you know, um, Christians are not always the best people to agree with one another. Um, (laughs) But there is an enormous wide appeal uh, of George Herbert. A good example would be, we know that Charles I, as he was in prison awaiting execution, read George Herbert's poetry. We also knew that the chaplain to Oliver Cromwell was commending to Cromwell George Herbert's (laughs) poems. There's a nice example of uh, the wide appeal. Um, And this may be the reason uh, that was uh, summed up in 1681 by Richard Baxter, who said, Herbert speaks to God like one that really believeth a God. And then he says, heartwork and heaven work make up his books heart work and heaven work make up his books heart work and heaven work you encounter in his poems very much what you might call poetic conversations with God these conversations are not always very polite this is not um, you know things about human beings we're never on our best when we're on our best behaviour Uh, And liturgies, of course, often make us on our best behaviour with God. We're exceptionally polite to God. Dear God, um, amen. Uh, You're wonderful, we're very small. That sort of sums up most prayers in in a liturgy. You're very big, we're very small, amen. The thing is, you're not getting that in the poetry of Herbert. You're getting a very spontaneous, direct conversation set up. And that conversation, because I think he's talking to a friend, is often argumentative, complaining, grieving, celebrating, singing God's praise, Whole, whole uh, fulsome relationship going on here. And what you encounter in those poems is not just an idea of the divine or transcendent. He's not writing lots of nice poems about God in a sort of abstract way. You know, I wandered lonely as an angel and I'm going to talk to you about God what you get in the poems is a sense of experience somebody once said about Herbert you feel that the poetry is on the pulse of the human speaker that this is very caught up in, the, in Herbert himself <clears throat> this is poetry that is close to God and close to the human heart And uh, John Dunn, who um, Herbert knew very well, Dunn was really a friend of Herbert's mother, but uh, became a friend of of Herbert. Dunn once said about preaching that effective preachers are those who have a nearness with their congregation. So as you speak, if the congregation feels that your humanity is very near to theirs, you're going to be an effective preacher because... he he talked about his nearness as a preacher I think as a poet uh, with his talking and expressing the the relationship with God you sense in Herbert that nearness and I think that's why it has such a wide appeal it's sometimes debated uh, however as to how great a poet Herbert is you get very different views about this some people think and this this is rather academic here Is he a major-minor poet, or is he a (laughs) minor-major poet? Um, Well, I don't really know, except I know he's a very much-loved poet, and he'll be in any anthology you buy of uh, English poetry, probably. He was much loved by other poets, um, Eliot and Auden, Emily Dickinson, uh, R.S. Thomas, Elizabeth Bishop, Seamus Heaney, I could go on and on. They all championed him as somebody they look to for for inspiration. Coleridge, uh, slightly out of vogue with his time, uh, in his appreciation of Herbert, said that reading Herbert helped him with his tendency to Ah. self-contempt. So Coleridge said he had a tendency to self-contempt, and Herbert pulled him out of that come back to that because I think that's what friends do. One critic uh, commented that Herbert's art represents the high point of Christian poetry uh, in which he said, Christianity and human nature, language and personal depth and musical skill all perfectly coincide. You've got depth, language human nature, Christian faith, musicality, frankly, what's not to love. Um, I think another appeal for Herbert is uh, one reason he's liked by people of faith quite often is because he doesn't focus so much on doctrines. He doesn't take you off into abstract examinations of our doctrinal beliefs he does keep focusing on our human experience as people of belief. Um, these, in a way, are, I think are love poems. To <laughs> and if any of you who've been in love will know that that doesn't always mean you're sitting there oohing and aahing in a honeymoon. Sometimes you're going through difficult times, and they're still love poems. They're psalm-like, in many ways, in which I... I mean, they speak for everyone... And all our moods that we have, (coughs) all the depths we undergo, the lament and the praise. I think they're psalm-like in that way. I think we recognise ourselves in a lot of his (coughs) poems. The other appeal, of course, is that the language is remarkably simple in many ways. It's very accessible. We'll find en route that's not always the case, but a lot of that is historical, I think. But there is a sort of plainness um, where, in Herbert, you know, beauty is truth and truth is quite simple in its communication. And this is remarkable because he was a very skilled and learned man. He was an exceptional uh, orator. He was a linguist. Uh, he was a classicist. Um, but he, at the end of the day, when he wrote to the country parson... In his uh, advice to, to clergy, he said that a, a clergyman, it always had to be a man in those days, a clergyman must have a library not consisting of books, but of a holy life. That was the library the country parson was to have. I think that you do find, though, although the language is simple in Herbert, the things he's talking about are not always simple. There is an integrity in complexity going on here. He is quite playful. He loves paradoxes. Uh, as I've told some of you, you know, I, I was taught by a very systematic minded uh, professor at university who was always going on about the importance of paradox, and I, I said, "Oh yes, for all your doctrinal headaches, take paradox." Uh, <laughs> but actually, uh, yeah, here is a wonderful playfulness with paradox. He puns beautifully, lots of puns going on in his his, uh, poetry. You have wit, but you have a transparency. Um, There's an irony, quite often, rather sharp irony in some of his poems, but you do feel he achieves sincerity. He talks at one point about his poor, silly soul. I think we might know what that means. Um, one thing we often forget is poems have not always had titles Herbert was one of the first people to title his poems and the titles are actually and, and have become this in other poems the first key you're given into a poem very much so with his so when we look at the poems the first thing I will take you to is the title um, because they are rather important. Um, And as I say, a lot of puns going on. I mean, an obvious one would be the sun. I mean, you've got the sun out here, which he's praising it, but of course you're hearing the sun as in son of God. So you get, that's a very obvious one, there are lots of others. Um, The other last thing I would say about his appeal is that the materials he's using are often very traditional. These are uh, uh, he's talking about the experience of the human self trying to relate in friendship to God that's an old that's an old topic <laughs> um, but he's doing it quite often with very fresh <coughs> imagery and language startling sometimes uh, and I think that you don't feel that he's being terribly radical and taking you into yeah. unknown territories you feel actually hes he, it's still about God and creation and the human soul, but actually this is a language that sounds fresh. And you feel as if you want to go there with him. Uh, and as I say, there is all there is this conversational tone. So let's just look in your little um, booklet I've done. If you look at page 19... Bittersweet. I think this is a really good summary of the Temple, the collection of his poems. Let me just read it to you. Bittersweet. Ah, my dear angry lord, since thou dost love, yet strike. Cast down, yet help afford. Sure, I will do the like. I will complain, yet praise. I will bewail, approve, and all my sour sweet days I will lament and love. That's a really good summary. Uh, of George Herbert's approach to God in his poems, uh, somebody said this is as superb a piece of poetry as ever was compressed into eight short lines. Uh, it encapsulates the mood of the temple, uh, intense, fluctuating emotions, honesty. You know, if if I'm going to be your friend, then you've got to take me as I am. Um, I mean, I won't go too much into depth with this, but let's just look at one or two of the images here. It's very much caught up with that whole idea of Felix Culpa, the idea that, you know, it's a good thing at the end of the day we sinned because then God stepped in and saved us. Uh, We would never have known grace unless we'd got it wrong. And uh, God casts down, it says here, cast down sounds a bit like Eden. Uh, and help afford in Christ that's very much in the background here um, the title again was bittersweet uh, it's a homely term of his own day uh, there was um, a flower in his day called bittersweet, it was the woody nightshade cool. but actually much more importantly I think it was a type of apple uh, And that, of course, instantly makes you think of the fall. Uh, So love also is a sort of bittersweet. The love of God, the love of another person, has a bittersweetness to it. Um, And John Donne, in one of his sermons, because sometimes people find that first line a bit sort of, my dear angry Lord, and John Donne preached a sermon around the same time as this poem was written, where he said, God, who is love, can be angry. (laughs) This idea that love can be angry because you're damaging yourself. And a parent hates to see that. So that you can be angry and love. But um, here is, you know, and again, all the way through Herbert, you will hear the Bible in the background. You know, Hosea, the Lord uh, has torn and he will heal us. And what I love about this is in that line four, you get that Herbert bravado. You do that? I think I'll do that too. You're going to be angry? So am I. Uh, You're going to love and strike? Okay, so will I. I will complain. You know, there's lots to complain about, actually, God. But there's a lot to praise. I'm going to bewail. But I'll approve when you do well.
1: <laughs>
0: and all these sour, sweet days of ours together. I'm always going to lament because there's enough of pain in my existence and in the world. But I'm going to love too. And... Uh, I think that uh, is very common in in a a poem. You get right at the end that sense of and yet, and yet. And those last two words, I mean, it's very interesting. Again, we'll find it in another poem. Love is the final word. It's not a jaundiced end. It's a love end but I think that's a lovely little encapsulation of of what we're going to find in the temple. Uh, He was very uh, creative and sophisticated when it came to writing his poems. I said there's about 170 poems in the temple. Um, You're going to ask me which are the same. I don't know this, but I can tell you that virtually all those poems, in their poetic form, are never used twice so nearly every one of his poems has a unique form to it he was very ingenious and creative about using his uh, poetic forms Uh, they're all different and yet for all this rhetorical genius and this formality of style so for instance it's not just that poems you know he might write a sonnet but then he might write a poem that is shaped like wings You've seen that Easter weekends. So you have to turn the page around, actually. <coughs> Otherwise, it's like an hourglass. Very interesting. But uh, so sometimes it's a visual play, um, very creative. Or, or you might get a very famous poem like uh, Prayer, which has no main verb in it at all, mm-hmm. because prayer presumably is ceaseless. So lots of creative ingenuity here but there's always this sort of simplicity at their heart, this music very familiar language very familiar imagery so sweeping a room or looking at glass uh, or walking to church or listening to bells. This is, this is the world we know there's very familiar uh, references, local references and the temple Uh, all these poems, is split into three. The Church Porch, The Church, and The Church Militant. And to get to know Herbert best, you need to go into the middle, into the part called The Church. (coughs) That's the sort of art of the collection. And those poems, called The Church, is really a sort of sequence of poems that meditates on the suffering of Christ and the joys of Easter and then it opens it out into the joys and pains of the believer often looking too at the support of the church its sacraments, its liturgies and often looking at uncertainties and spiritual isolation he said to have described his own poems like this they are a picture of the many spiritual conflicts that have passed betwixt God and my soul before I could subject mine to the will of Jesus my master. He often referred to Jesus as his master. So this is a, a little window, a picture of the spiritual conflicts that have occurred betwixt God and his soul. Sometimes he has little clusters of poems in this section called The Church that share the same title. So um, you can have Love One, Love Two, Love Three. Interestingly, the one cluster that has the same title most is Affliction. And the climax of this sequence looks through death and to the last things and ends with the serenity of that reassuring last lyric, simply called Love. Um, I'm going to now just look very briefly in the rest of this session on just reminding you of something of his his life. Um, Before I do that, though, let's just recall, because somebody said, and I think this is very important, I'm not really familiar with poetry so now we're going to be reading poetry so first thing is you've got to relax (laughs) I'm going to show off I'm going to get a B plus you haven't got to tell me or anybody else what the meaning is of a poem that's such a silly idea Um, if I was a musician and I was playing you a piece of music you'd never say to me what did that mean silly question, category error the meaning of music the meaning of a poem is not out there it's in here so the meaning of anything I will read out to you, any poem is the response it has in you right? it's not something that we've got to go with a torch and try and find okay? it's out there somewhere I know it is okay? um, So you've got to relax, really. You've got to say, hmm, maybe there are lots of meanings. And what's exciting, and you'll hopefully find this out after lunch, is other people will see other meanings on top of yours. And you'll put them all together, and you'll have one enormous meaning that none of you got. And that's the work of a poem. So you do have to relax... Uh, and sort of say well there may be lots of open ends there may be lots of paths I can wander up I can go uh, free range I can be a happy cow and free range <laughs> in this poem okay? and it's going to be a wonderful fresh place to be because nobody's pinning me down and uh, Billy Collins, who's an American... Uh, he, he was the American poet laureate. He's been teaching poetry for a long, long time to classes, and uh, he wrote this. And I think it's, it's a lovely help to anybody who's trying to get into poetry. It's called Introduction to Poetry. I ask them to take a poem and hold it up to the light like a colour slide or press an ear against its hive. I say, drop a mouse into a poem and watch him probe his way out. (laughs) Or walk inside the poem's room and feel the walls for a light switch. I want them to water-ski across the surface of a poem, waving at the author's name on the shore. but all they want to do is tie the poem to a chair with rope and torture a confession out of it. They begin beating it with a hose to find out what it really means. So, let's not say what it really means, let's say what does it mean to you um, and see where that goes. Um, so George Herbert <coughs> born in Montgomery in 1593 just let's put that into some context that's 29 years after Shakespeare's birth and 10 years before Queen Elizabeth I's I that's the sort of area we're in uh, his father Richard Herbert was descended from the Earls of Pembroke uh, his mother Magdalene from the princes of Powis. <coughs> uh, so Herbert's friend, um, Barnabas Oli, said this was a generous, noble, and ancient family. So he's not from a housing estate. Okay? He was the seventh of ten children. Uh, when his father died, he was only three when his father died, his mother was left with six boys and three girls and she was two months pregnant as well uh, and she was a remarkable woman his mother she was strong she was very well educated she was very devout and she took in 1597 she took her family um, to actually very close to where I was brought up in Shrewsbury they went to live in Iton upon Seven then they moved to Oxford because her eldest son was studying there Uh, and that's where she met John Donne for the first time who became a very good friend Um, and then she moved to London and she set up home in Charing Cross in 1601 Uh, another close friend of hers by the way for those of you who uh, are interested in this period and the spirituality of this period was Lancelot Andrews Mm -hmm. Uh, one of the translators of the King James Bible, became bishop later on, um, and he was working at the time as Dean of Westminster, and he probably taught George Herbert as a as a boy, because George Herbert went to Westminster school in 1604. Lancelot uh, <coughs> so Andrews moved very soon after that, but we do know that actually a little later in his life, when George Herbert went through a difficult patch, he wrote to Lancelot Andrews to go and see him so there probably was some uh, important relationship there so in this house now at Charing Cross here's Magdalene Herbert conducting her prayers every morning and evening psalm singing on Sunday evenings attending church this is the context in which George Herbert is uh, growing up uh, it's at this time he becomes a very skilled musician and lots and lots of music comes up in the poems lots of musical imageries and metaphors he was a very talented musician loved music uh, you'll also see in one of the poems that there's a little uh, sign that uh, they like to play cards because one of the poems uh, has um, uh, some expressions from card playing um, and was a happy home ...by all accounts... ...and lots of people coming and going... ...she was uh, not a socialite... ...she liked conversation... ...she liked people to come into the house... ...and he was growing up... uh, ...with all this around him... ...she got married again... uh, ...to Sir John Danvers... ...this seems to have caused a few problems... ...with some of the children... ...but not with George... ...his letters to his... ...stepfather later in life... ...are very affectionate... ...very respectful... There's no evidence of hostility. And uh, this probably helped George, who had been very hard-working, very successful at school, eventually to get into Trinity College, Cambridge. Here, too, he did very well in his BA. He was elected a minor fellow. Um, Then he studied classics, divinity for his MA. And eventually he's appointed uh, a reader in rhetoric. Uh, and these appointments helped him to ease his financial uh, situation because uh, his father had indicated in his will that each of the younger children should receive £40 a year uh, from their eldest brother but the eldest brother never quite delivered on time and actually preferred to pay them £30 a year so uh, him getting uh, some academic credibility was also helping him financially and this was really came to fruition when he was finally appointed to the very prestigious post of the public orator of Cambridge University um, he worked very hard by the way to get that post uh, this is the period where you suddenly realise that George Herbert may be a great saint um, but that doesn't mean he was perfect you know Frank Muir, do you remember um, Call My Bluff he once got out the word saint and he said, oh, the definition of saint is dead sinner, dug up and edited. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we don't have to edit George Herbert here. Uh, I think he was very saintly, but this time, uh, what we're getting through from people's accounts of him is that he was a bit of a prig. He was a bit of what we would now call a sort of young fogey. He was very concerned about his clothes. Walton, who's a... Don't trust Walton's account too much of Herbert, because we know there are problems with it, but he says uh, of this of him at this time his clothes seemed to prove he put too great a value on his parts and parentage. <laughs> and he really worked all his contacts to get himself this high orator job at Cambridge. Um, however, something happens where it may have been the king's death because he was uh, in favour with James uh, the king dies and of course you know he's no longer part of the sort of court uh, he's not so in favour and uh, I think it throws him into a bit of disarray he slightly goes off the map, off the radar a bit we don't know an enormous amount around this time Um, And what appears is that he started to reassess his life. Do you remember Joseph Campbell, uh, the great mythologist, says that there comes a moment in every life where you've been climbing up the roof, uh, you've been climbing up the house to get onto the top of the roof, and when you get there you suddenly realise it's the wrong house. And that's called midlife crisis. It's the wrong bloody house. And you've put all your energy to get there. Well, I think he was having this not so much in midlife, he was having it a bit earlier, he was trying to reassess. Uh, And this was later described as him losing himself in a humble way. Losing himself in a humble way. He was struggling, I suppose, with worldly ambition, if you want to be parsonical about it. Um, We don't know exactly when he was ordained, but he obviously decided uh, to be ordained. He was ordained deacon. Uh, That stopped him, by the way, then, from any sort of civil employment. Uh, It then seems likely that around 1624, 1626, uh, he decided to be priested. Um, he takes leave of his oratorship uh, and eventually um, he focuses less on his academic credibility, his courtly, worldly life, and starts very much more to focus on his priestly being. Here's a little quote from one of his affliction poems which I think summarises this part of his life quite well. Now I am here. What thou wilt do with me, none of my books will show. I read and sigh and wish I were a tree. For sure then I should grow to fruit or shade. I think the books weren't enough. Uh, and he wanted fruit in his life. Um, uh, he'd been writing poems, by the way. A lot of people think that he wrote poems as soon as he was a priest and he had a parish in Beverton and whatnot. No, he'd been writing poems all this period. Um, he wrote Latin poems. Some of those were published in his lifetime. His English poems were not published before his death. So he was writing, but they weren't published. Um, he then eventually ends up being a parish priest outside Salisbury in the living of Fuggleston with Bemerton how many of you have been there? Yeah, it's a very you have to be careful getting into it because it's now on a sort of very busy crossroads, you nearly get sliced down by juggernauts but it's really worth the visit it's this tiny, tiny little church and next to it is the vicarage which he lived, still there the rectory, uh, it's not still the rectory uh, but uh, Vikram Seth lived there so there it is still there, you, can, you can see it and uh, he was uh, installed as the rector and Walton tells the reader of this period of his life that this was to prepare for an almost incredible story of the great sanctity of the short remainder of his holy life. One thing we do know, if we're talking about how much of a saint he was, yes, maybe occasionally a bit of a fogey, like to. The word trim and neat and clean come up in his poems a lot. He was obviously, you know. Right? The other thing about him was he had a bit of a temper. It was a family trait, apparently, uh, that he had a short temper and uh, his best friend sometimes <coughs> note this, maybe you know, a bit of blood pressure or something <laughs> but he could get a bit irascible and a bit irritable uh, and of course uh, when you come across a poem like The Collar you, you encounter this and of course the whole play about that word The Collar is that it, it could be spelt C-H-O-L-E-R Collar he's got a, a sort of bad blood in him that wants to have a good shout. However, when he gets to Bemerton, here he is, um, devout, conscientious, and kind. Again, lots of people have this image that he spent, you know, 45 years being a rector of this little pa- He was there three years. He was only there three years. Um, his brother Edward, uh, who wrote about him about ten years after he died, uh, wrote this about his brother. His life was most holy and exemplary in so much that about Salisbury he was little less than sainted. He was not exempt from passion and cholera, being infirmities to which all our race is subject, <laughs> but that accepted without reproach in his actions. I love that. It's not, not absolutely perfect, uh, but he was, he says, little less than sainted. He was very popular. And that little church of St. Andrew at Bemberton is still there on that traffic island. Uh, and he walked, it said, to Evensong at Salisbury Cathedral um, twice a week to hear uh, the choir sing. He called it his heaven upon earth. And of course now when you go to Salisbury I was trying to say moving over the door there now is a statue of George Herbert. Uh, But he suffers all through his life with periodic ill health. And uh, he, he gets ill and at the age of 39 on the 1st of March 1633 he dies. And he's buried in that little church. So if you want to visit his grave, go to St. Andrews, Bemerton. It's not marked, but he's there somewhere. I love that, too. Typical Herbert. It's not about him. Um, As I say, none of his English poems had appeared in print. However, he knew he was dying. He knew this was a serious illness. And he collected all his poems that he'd been (coughs) writing and he put them in, uh, in order, like a little notebook put together his poems. And uh, he spent a lot of time ordering them. It's not just, you know, <laughs> who we are. The titles uh, and, and the themes are his very, you know, that he's shaped them. So, for instance, you get a, um, a poem like The Flower, and it's right underneath the poem called The Cross. And this is because in lots of iconography, underneath the cross, you find little flowers sprouting in the new creation, being fed by the blood that comes onto the ground. And so there's new life coming to be. So underneath the cross, the poem he called The Cross, is the flower. So that's a little example. He, he orders it very well. The very last poem is Love, three. Love must be the final word. So he puts these together in in an order that he thinks is right, and he sends them off to his great friend Nicholas Ferrer, who's at Little Gidding. Another person, by the way, who had a courtly life in the offering and gave it up uh, to go and live with his mother and uh, that uh, sort of family, really, in in Little Gidding. And he sends a note to Nicholas Ferrer, and it simply says... If he think it may turn to the advantage of any dejected poor soul, let it be made public. If not, let him burn it. Well, by the end of that year, it was in print. Nicholas Ferrer read these. Apparently he wept as he read them. Uh, He saw not only his own soul, but the soul of humanity in these poems and did not go anywhere near the fire. It was an immediate success, there were four editions in three years and, and then I say it, it spread this great sort of popularity and, and uh, less highly regarded in the 18th century but apart from that continuously been uh, acclaimed and uh, here we are today still, still <laughs> reading them um, so let's before we have our little break, let's just look at a, another poem, which we'll launch yeah. If you look at page zero, which is the first poem you get in that in the little booklet called Jordan Two. Jordan, <clears throat> When first my lines of heavenly joys made mention, Such was their lustre, they did so excel, That I sought out quaint words and trim invention, My thoughts began to burnish, sprout, and swell, Curling with metaphors a plain intention, decking the sense as if it were to sell thousands of notions in my brain did run offering their service if I were not sped I often blotted what I had begun this was not quick enough and that was dead nothing could seem too rich to clothe the sun much less those joys which trample on his head as flames do work and whined when they ascend, so did I weave myself into the sense. But while I bustled, I might hear a friend whisper, how wide is all this long pretense? There is in love a sweetness ready penned. Copy out only that and save expense. <laughs> There's that word friend, which I'm going to look at after our break. But there it is. A friend whispering, calling him back to his sense. Let's just, we have five minutes before that break. Why is this called Jordan? Oh, good. <laughs> You're going to uh, ask yes, that? Yes, <coughs> I'm going to ask you. Uh, why is it called, sorry? Uh, so baptism is about what?
1: It's about. Uh, really, really, uh, how have we got? Uh, <laughs> Answers, please, on a postcard. You know, it's, about, it's about commitment to God, but it's also embracing the physicality of God in your life.
0: And about new beginnings. It's about new beginnings, yes. Yeah, and about repentance. Yeah. Anybody know the Old Testament well enough to know what else happened in the River Jordan? Well
1: do you cross over the cross the Jordan here? Yes. So it's crossing over
0: from Egypt right. side. So w- Well yes, that's more the Red Sea that you're thinking of there. No, I'm not thinking of the Red Sea, oh. i Jordan. Okay. Okay, but they there is something else stones about stones
1: the Yes,
0: stones and are remembered. Something else happened. Yes, New happened. New yes, America, yes, America, yes. America, yes, America, yes. Naaman, with his leprosy, uh, goes into the Jordan and gets cleaned of all his bad skin. And uh, most people think that that was very much in Herbert's mind when he wrote this poem and called it Jordan. Um, Here is is, uh, the clever Herbert, (laughs) the orator, the wordsmith, the person who can win you all over, uh, arguing somewhere in this poem for a plainer style um, that's proper to prayer, to the relationship with God. And the question, of course, it's around here is, how do you externalise things that are grasped internally? How do you write about these things that are so close to you that nothing can do justice? Um, I mean if you just look when first my lines lines by the way um, he often uses the word lines to refer to his poems Uh, there's a lovely uh, poem he wrote called A True Hymn which says this the fineness which a hymn or psalm affords is when the soul unto the lines accords when your words and your soul are playing the same tune, then you have the real hymn to God. And this poem is trying to get there. It's saying, I, you know, I, my language had lots of luster. It really excelled. You know, I, I, I tried to be trim. I tried to cut things down. I invented it. I burnished. That means spread out, grow. Or it could mean polish. I polished my words rather nicely. And they swelled it's another musical term curling with metaphors curling, what do you do, what does that mean curling come on ladies, what do you do with your tongues you get out your curling tongues you're, you're beautifying yourself he, he took the words to beautify he curled them with metaphors um, decking beautifying uh, as if it was to sell, if it was something to sort of, how do you like it Buy it. Thousands of notions in his brain, offering their service. Um, I blotted out, I was not quick enough. No, no, that didn't work. I think I'll start again. Nothing could seem too rich to clothe the sun. Here's a pun. How do you clothe with words the great son of God? nothing could seem too rich to clothe the son much less those joys which trample on his head what trampled on his head the crown of thorns should you really be burnishing, polishing and showing off if you're interested in the son who suffered with things trampling on his head or do you need a different language what language is it love get back to love and what the friend says here how long this pretense there is in love a sweetness ready penned where is that love being penned <coughs> do you think here where's it been ready penned ready by the mean by the way means already so there is in love a sweetness already penned where in in the heart in the Bible and in Jesus copy out only that and save expense <coughs> don't ch- uh, you know? charge the, uh, you know, keep your eyes on what matters keep your eyes on love do not expend your spirit on things that don't matter um in, in one of his poems called Conscience, he writes, um, my words must come, but like a noiseless sphere. He has to use words. They're what he does. He wants to use them in this conversation with his God. But they can't be noisy. <laughs> they can't be bluster. They can't be bustling. They must reflect what he calls that noiseless sphere, that place of transcendence and simplicity, and ultimately love. So, that's what he was learning from his friend, who whispered. And that's what we'll be looking at after the break. Thank Thank you.